Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Hi, Vinny. Road to Growth listeners. Uh, today, I'm lucky enough to have Dimitri here. Uh, he is a violin expert. He practices and now he makes these beautiful violins. If you have a second, uh, go to the link um, beneath and look at his website. You can kind of watch him talk eloquently about how he builds the violin. Some take two to three months. But Dimitri, you can tell more about kind of who you are and, and what you do to the audience. Great, uh, Vin Vincent. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, thank you very much for this very lovely introduction. So indeed, yes, I am a designer of fine concert-grade violins, which I build for musicians, professional musicians, to help them essentially to fulfill their musical aspirations. Indeed, I um, was used to play as a professional uh, musician all over the place until uh, certain faithful events in my life took that passion away from me, which is when I had to reinvent myself and do things slightly or radically differently, I would say. Uh, so yes, I still design and create custom instruments for musicians, but I also feel very passionate about helping music professionals become more successful in their endeavors and help instrument makers in particular also to create these businesses, instrument making businesses that they will love. That's what I'm doing. I mean, I love when I get people on here that have had a passion about something, right? And grown up, done one thing, and then they find out that they can't do that activity more and they have to either coach or they have to build something that's still affiliated with that practice. And you said an, an unfortunate event. Can you kind of walk us through what happened there to transition from your passion to, to I guess, your new passion? Uh, great question. So that would take us to January 19, 2013, when I happened to have a massive health issue, which almost killed myself, but luckily did not. <laughs> I can laugh about this today, but then it wasn't funny on the moment. <laughs> I don't recommend anyone doing this at home. Anyway, so I had a, a cerebral stroke and um, I was uh, left initially paralyzed. And while I was lying there in the bed, in that hospital bed, and uh, wondering what I will do uh, with my life, essentially, because I didn't feel like I want to um, spend the rest of my life in that bed. Uh, the doctor brought this devastating news that I would be very lucky if I were able to walk again or speak normally, but I would probably not be able to uh, play the violin ever again. <laughs> yeah, that was a uh, pretty dark moments in my life, uh, which is when thanks to, yeah, it was my wife actually who inspired me to think differently about what I can still do. And well, she, well, the first, first thing so she just told me, just Dimitri, forget about everything and you need to recover, you will be all right. Just uh, focus on your health, recover. And look, even if you cannot play the violin ever again, and let's imagine you even cannot make violins again, you can still help so many music professionals if you simply share your knowledge, because you have accumulated this 25, 28 years worth of knowledge, uh, how to organize your own concerts when no one is offering you those concert opportunities. How do you create these fantastic instruments for professional musicians? What if you just share this knowledge with instrument makers? What if you just share this passion and this knowledge with other musicians who would potentially want to kind of grab control of their gifts in their own hands and go ahead and create opportunities for themselves. And I just thought at this moment, still lying in that hospital bed, 
yeah, this completely makes sense. Um, and um, she, she kind of helped me realize that if I uh, just died, because it could have also happened that I would be just dead <laughs> on that moment, then I would have taken all this experience and uh, lifetime uh, worth of uh, passion for music and knowledge uh, down to the grave. And it means that would, this would make my life perfectly meaningless. And which is when I suddenly realized, yeah, of course, that that's absolutely makes sense. What if I could share this um, knowledge? And this is when my entrepreneurial uh, transformation tra transformation has began. And I started looking for ways how can I indeed um, help others do what they want to do. Um, yeah, so that was the that was the the turning point for me. It was a terrible point, but I can say that I have made the best out of that darkest point in my life. So when you had the stroke, were you already, so you were already an artist and you were uh, a violin maker? Yes, yes. So okay. uh, up to that point, I was uh, used to perform as a musician. So essentially, I was a core member of some of the really finest ensembles in the world, especially in the field of uh, ancient music. So one of these groups is uh, uh, La Petite Band, founded by the legendary musician. And um, uh, lots of listeners will definitely know his name and this name of uh, orchestra, La Petite Band of Sigiswald Kirk. And so I was a core member of this orchestra for 12 years. And I also performed with Richard Carconso, absolutely amazing, amazing group. And we traveled all around the world. We played concerts in absolutely all countries or almost all countries of Europe and um, also overseas in Asia, in Latin America. Um, so it was an amazing uh, artist uh, career. But at the same time, I have uh, always felt that my like burning desire was to, um, to create very fine concert grade instruments for for musicians mm. so and that's my ch almost childhood passion so i began when i was 11 years of age crafting those instruments um and that was actually one of the reasons i wanted to move to europe to uh, from russia to study the uh, the thought process of the ancient masters how did they design those instruments what is behind those amazing outlines of violin why the violin has that shape not another shape what are the reasons behind those curves? Because, well, today, in, in modern um, industry of violin making, the, the normal procedure is I get a poster of a beautiful instrument, normally one-to-one one one scale, a real size, life-size poster of an instrument, uh, cut it out with scissors, <laughs> trace it on the wood, and there you are. You make a copy of a Stradivari violin or Guarneri violin or something like this. So uh, with all respect to this approach to instrument making, I just always felt that there must be something else. Because look, the original instrument makers in the 17th century or, uh, or 18th century, those, those ma masters whom we all admire today, those masters who have created these multi-million euro or multi-million dollar instruments today, they didn't have posters to copy from. They have they, they had to use something else, their heads, their the culture that was surrounding them, the, the philosophy within which they grew up. And I had this burning desire to find out what were the reasons. And that was the reason for my then the, the 
biggest reason for my moving to Europe and starting my research and just kind of reinventing the whole thing and doing things radically different in instrument making, which which also which what allows me to create those amazing instruments with fantastic results. And that's also what allows me to help my students, instrument makers, to start building businesses that they really love. And that just that makes me so passionate about this. Makes me so happy when you, I hear uh, comments from my instrument, uh, from my students like Dimitri. Thanks to you, I'm living now in my dream. They're creating these be beautiful businesses, uh, start uh, creating amazing musical instruments. Um, and uh, increase double, triple, quadruple their profits and just live much more fulfilled lives as music professionals. That is so you, you're at a young age, you were building violins, yet you started performing. Was that yeah. simultaneously that it was kind of coming together that you were building something and trying trying it out or how did how did that work out? Yeah, Vicente, that's a great question. Uh, it started almost simultaneously, essentially. I, you know, from a very young age, I felt I want to become a musician. I want to make music on stage. Why? Because uh, it was like a magical world um, of color and emotion. It's like, you know, if you put yourself in the context, uh, I grew up in the Soviet Union, well, pretty much uniform. <laughs> and... Um, uh, uh, quite restricted uh, society in a way. Somehow I felt from my parents, because I was a child, I didn't, I didn't have a clue about what was going on politically, but it just somehow I felt that you cannot really express yourself without fear. Uh, you can't say what you think about the political or, or whatever. No, um, But music was the only area where um, people felt really free and happy, and I have been to countless performances, uh, obviously because my father was a musician, and I felt if that makes people so happy, I want to become a musician. So I, that was my early passion. I became, uh, became interested in violin, uh, violin playing. And at one of my lessons, I remember as if it happened one week ago, literally, um, we were working on the sound production and I was playing this uh, tiny child-sized violin, ugly, you know, terrible sound. And my professor had a beautiful multi-million dollar Italian antique instrument. And he was telling me, Dimitri, look, no, that's not the way. No, this is how you have to make this beautiful sound. Yeah, a little bit more, slow down the boat, speed up the boat, pressure, all kinds of things. And no matter what I tried, of course, I couldn't get that sound. So <laughs> disheartened, I just put my violin down. And I said, Simeon Grigorich, that's his name. Look at your violin and look at my violin. No matter how hard I practice, I will never sound like you. So let's fix my violin first. And he looked at me and said, Dima, that makes completely sense. Okay, let's go to the violin maker in the town. So he introduced me to the violin maker in the town. And uh, this was like, oh, wow, it's a magical world, completely new world. It's just uh, 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 opened up before my eyes, all these beautiful musical instruments all over the place, smell of wooden shavings, the drawings, and varnish, and glue, tools. And there, there uh, he was, the master, you know, and he looked fairly like, 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 a, like a magician from a fairy tale, in a very uh, gentle mannered, elderly gentleman, a little bit round with a thick, thick, thick eyeglasses, this kind of eyeglasses, 
<laughs> which looks like a magnifying glass for his um, for his eyes, like a giant eyes, incredibly kind smile. I just fell in love with him. I, I literally fell in love with the whole atmosphere and with this guy in particular. And I don't know what came upon me, but I just told him, listen, I would like to learn how can I fix my violin by myself? Would you take me as an apprentice? Mm. And, and, and the guy, I'm sure he was really flabbergasted because he had never heard anything like it from a customer. <laughs> because that's what who, am, uh, who I was, essentially. I came there to ask him to fix my violin. Now I was asking him to teach me how to fix my violin. And to my luck and to my surprise, he accepted me. So I apprenticed to this uh, wonderful human being. And he inspired me a lot. And he taught me a lot. And that's how I got involved with instrument making. And um, how old were you? Did you say? I, that was 11. Yeah, that was 11. I was 11 years of age. And what happened with this, uh, what was particularly inspiring in this amazing craftsman is he was not a normal kind of violin maker. He was a very unique. He's actually, he has done something that no other violin maker has ever done. You see, so uh, this is ex-Soviet Union and this particular episode took place in 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 Caucasus very high up in the mountains almost like Switzerland like very high alps high mountains with glaciers and incredible nature very tiny town so what happened there is um, after the years of uh, after 70 years of communism the folkloric musical culture or any kind of folkloric music uh, folkloric art has completely disappeared People, it was kind of eradicated. People forgot their identity, their cultural identity almost. Yeah. And um, my teacher, my master, when he settled there, he was, he just checked around. What can I do here? Well, all right, we have two symphony orchestras, definitely enough work uh, for an instrument maker. But is it the biggest thing I can do in this uh, republic? And he realized that uh, since they lost their traditional folkloric music, they lost instruments, they know how, how to play them, the music, the repertoire. He launched ethnomusicological research. And after five years of researching the local musical culture, musical instruments, uh, traveling the mountains high up in the mountains, like speaking about four or 5,000 meters high, uh, discovering these completely isolated villages somewhere up there in the glaciers, finding out finding people who could still play those instruments, very elderly people who had those instruments. So after five years of very intense labor, he was able to create all varieties of instruments um, that were once upon a time very common in this part and then were lost completely. He found people who were able to, to sing, to play and teach other people. And he created so many instruments that it was enough for two orchestras. And I, re I remember this moment when one of these orchestras was uh, uh, premiered for the first time and then went even to a World Expo in Paris, 1980 or 1970 something, I don't remember exactly. There was like a sense of renaissance in the air. Lots of people were so proud and so happy uh, for this. And I saw the value of culture, what happens when culture is all of a sudden lost and how people actually relate to that loss of culture. And what happens when it is back, people can appreciate it again. And this man, uh, he became my role model. He was like a super hero for me. I thought, wow, I would like to do something like that. 
I would like to do something what he has done, something no one ever done. And um, so that was like really the the key years in my for uh, the training as an instrument maker. Although I was a kid and I still haven't built my first violin. So the first violin came up much later and that was already in uh, St. Petersburg. I moved to St. Petersburg uh, to study at Conservatoire. And um, that's where I apprenticed to the next instrument making uh, teacher. This is where I actually build my instrument. And um, the reason I build my instrument in, uh, in, in St. Petersburg was because um, I just felt quite <laughs> inferior, frankly, because uh, the classmates at that very elite school of music were all playing on dream instruments. Vicente, like, you know, today these instruments cost multiple six figures, seven figures. And, and I was playing on a crude, 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 like ridiculous instrument. And it just didn't make me feel particularly inspired. So what to do? And I was considering, well, all right, I don't know how to get, where to get the million dollars or whatever that was in, in those money. Uh, so I, I reckon that the only way, and maybe even the best way, is just to make it. Just make my own violin. <laughs> and that's how I began, um, began my proper professional life as an instrument maker. So I didn't have any tools. I, I didn't have a bench. So I have this 200, 120 kilograms heavy bench behind. At that time, in Leningrad, well, ex, uh, yeah, St. Petersburg, former Leningrad, I didn't have anything. I didn't have bench. I didn't have tools. I was building this violin literally on my lap. There is even still that historical photo somewhere on my Facebook page you know, from that period, myself building that violin on my lap with tools made from uh, nail files because I just couldn't find anything. So I had to make those tools from nail files. To my incredible, enormous surprise, this first violin won a diploma at the competition of violin makers in Moscow in 1992, February 1992, February or March, I don't remember exactly the date. Uh, the diploma is still here on the wall of my workshop. <laughs> And this was another turning point for me. So first of all, I've discovered that uh, having an inspiring instrument is really the key for a musician. Because, uh, well, may maybe that instrument, that first violin that I have uh, built, definitely it was not one of my best violins. And definitely it didn't sound like six-figure Italian instrument. Definitely not. But there was some kind of affinity between myself and that violin. It kind of opened up chakras, you know opened me up and it made me much better musician overnight without having to practice more, nothing of this kind. This was the moment when I truly appreciated what it is for a musician to have an instrument that has been built exactly for him or her, an instrument that clicks like that with the heart, with the mind of a musician and, and you just become exponentially better. And you just get these amazing results. You get these crying audiences or cheering audiences without effort because you are amazing as you are. And that is just it. It's not that um, you have to find an instrument that is the right fit for you. It's, it has to be a marriage, you know, it's like a, and the instrument has to be created for you. So this was one thing that really realize, uh, helped me realize what it is, a great instrument, a great, great, great instrument. And there is another thing which I realized during that very first competition, first and last my, <laughs> um, prize, 
when I looked around myself, just imagine this uh, thing, you know, a room full of violins, and there were like 200 violins maybe, uh, violins, violas, cellos, built by around 70 uh, instrument makers from all around Russia. And it did, it just, uh, uh, it was a striking to see this, uh, hundreds of instruments, and they were all like the same, look very similar one to another. So first of all, they were all copies. They were all copies of uh, Stradivari, uh, or, or one or two of them were copies of Guarneri. And they all looked pretty similar, as if they were made by the same person. Well, of course, they were copies of uh, the same master, so make kind of sense, they looked all similar. And it was like, uh, don't get me wrong, the, the, the level was great. No, the, the quality of instruments was absolutely fantastic. But I felt in my heart, in my mind, something, wait a second, when you look into ancient art, you know, Baroque art, Renaissance art, contemporary art, instruments from the 16th or 17th or 18th century, you do not see this uniformity. You see variety, you see different forms of ways of expressing yourself as an artist, as an instrument. Where, where, where does standard come from? And I just felt like, hey, wait a second, I don't believe in these standards. And I don't feel like I want to squeeze myself to conform to that standards, no matter how high it is. So I better look for another way, better look for my own ways within instrument making. Yeah. And uh, thankfully inspired by another great teacher of mine, Vladimir uh, Yakimenko in St. Petersburg. He told me, Dimitri, it's completely makes sense. So go ahead, study the ancient masters, but then do not just seek to make copies for the rest of your life, rather think what they thought. Mm. And this is where my research began in 1994. And wow, that was an amazing journey. There's so many stories, uh, musicians and music um, audiences absolutely love this. Uh, stories of rediscovering the thought process of the ancient masters. How did they create this aesthetic? And there are so many ways to use this uh, philosophy and the process of the ancient masters. Firstly, you can use it to create very classical looking instruments for very classical musicians. Yeah, just to create a perfect match for a musician, you can use that, definitely. Or you can even use it to create revolutionary new instruments that look like nothing else, really modern, 3D printed, made in contemporary materials, carbon fiber, whatever, and modern instruments for modern music by composers, thinking, living, you know, today, but still with these thousands of years of tradition beneath. Mm. I think it's just a rich grounds. In fact, if we go through the history of art, we always find the same pattern all over again. So we know the names of the artists because, well, first of all, they knew the tradition really well. They knew the rule, and they always broke, bended those rules in one or another way and proposed new perspectives into the art, music, musical instruments, and so forth. So you had multiple mentors in, in Russia, and yeah. you're, you're starting to kind of understand what your your voices, right? Instead of basically copying, now you're finding your voice. When do you transition and realize, I can't grow as big as I want to grow in Russia, I need to move to Europe? 
Yeah, that's a fantastic uh, question. So essentially, yeah, um, after that competition in 1992, with the encouragement of my mentor in Russia, I started searching for information on the culture and aesthetic of, of the violin. And Russia offers fantastic violin playing traditions. So it's yeah, it's one of the best schools in the world. If you want to play how to if you learn if you want to learn how to play the violin, Russia is a good destination. Um, but violin is not a Russian thing. It's not part of Russian culture at all. So the um, availability of knowledge is pretty limited. There are fantastic libraries in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, but very soon. I uprooted those libraries and I literally ran out of relevant books mm. on this subject. And this is when I realized, all right, so maybe it's the time to move to Europe and be closer to the cultural roots of the violin, travel around, go to Italy, go to France, go to England, go to Spain, go to everywhere and just mm, no, like full immersion of myself in that culture. And that's how I'm... That's how I decided, that's how I came to the realization that in Russia the resources uh, were limited for me and the time was to go ahead and move to Europe to do that. Do you remember the moment or the encouragement when you were okay with not being a copier anymore but having your own voice? Do you remember that transition of saying, okay, I can actually, I've learned so many things, I can go for it. I can take my chance. I can risk it. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, sure. It, it was not an easy journey. Um, <laughs> so in 1994, uh, my dream comes true. So I moved to Brussels to study with the celebrated Sigiswald Kirken. Absolutely fantastic uh, human and absolutely fantastic legendary musician. And I was very inspired by what he has done in music. So you see, instead of uh, interpreting music, the the standard way, which you can learn everywhere, is more or less standardized. Um, what he did is, you know, he literally went to the libraries. He dug into the centuries and centuries of knowledge and books and treatises on on aesthetics and art and philosophy and um, music making in the past, and he kind of completely reinvented how we perform, how we perceive music by those composers and how we perform this music uh, closer to the ideal these composers one had upon the time in, in their minds. Um, so this is how the whole giant movement of in music known as early music or historically informed performance practice was born. And I was really inspired by the results because it was obviously that it worked. And I just thought, wow, what if I can do the same thing in violin making? What if I do the same and go to the libraries, read all these treatises, all these sources and books, and travel to different countries and absorb this culture and then apply this to instrument making. I was on fire. I was so inspired doing this. But very soon I discovered that I was the only person inspired by this. Because you know, so 94, I just arrived in Brussels. I've spent um, almost all my money on airplane ticket and I arrived in Brussels with 100 bucks in my pocket and no scholarship, no job, no guarantees of any kind. And the worst thing, um, more than anything else, I needed some money. So I needed to sell those violins. And you see myself on a rainy day around 
the whole city of Brussels and showing my instruments here and there and, they, and these musicians and those musicians and hearing all the time, Dimitri, are you trying to reinvent the wheel? Don't you know Stradivari has created the standards? Why don't you produce copies? This is what musicians want and on and on and on. For some even instrument makers told me, Dimitri, you will never make it as an instrument maker. So just quit, focus on music. You are a good player, but forget about instrument making. You will not make it. And at that moment, I felt really frustrated, really doubtful. And I thought, well, what, what if they are right? Maybe they are right. Maybe I failed already. Maybe it's just really should forget all this stuff. And <laughs> uh, another event, I can laugh about this today, but at the moment it was not funny. I cr crashed one of those violins that was uh, built upon my original model based on the ancient sources. And I promised myself never again, I'd never touch violin making in my life. And I focused on uh, playing music. And it was good. I mean, it was like La Petite Barn. It was like the, the, the top of the tops you can dream of as a Baroque musician. Richard Arkansas, absolutely stellar musicians, dear friends, fantastic, fantastic, really fantastic um, concert life. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to um, rediscover this secret, this thought process of the ancient masters and create my original models. And one day I just shared my doubts with, uh, with my mentor, Sigiswal Kauken, and I just told him, look, I, I just, I feel like, look, this music making is really fantastic. I love this music with Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, whatever, great music, um, but it's not my music and I want to create something of my own. And he encouraged me. He just told Dimitri, go ahead, uh, keep me informed. This is a very important research. Um, uh, take time off if you need to. Just be sure that you don't drop out from the conservatoire. Um, essentially, go ahead and do this. So I kept going. And um, uh, one moment, that was 2002. Yeah, no, it was 2000. Anyway, it doesn't really, uh, it's not very important, the, the exact date. Um, I, I made one of uh, violins, and it was... Um, bought by uh, Rio Terracado, the concertmaster of La Petite Band, and a very dear friend of mine, absolutely stellar, fantastic Japanese uh, violinist, conductor, and professor, great, great musician. And when he bought this violin, I thought, wow. And he, he's a world-class musician, and he buys this violin, and this violin is not a copy, it's based on this ancient uh, knowledge. I felt, wow, okay, uh, yeah. I, I'm uh, onto something. I will definitely make it work. And um, I started just doing more and more of this. And then gradually uh, musicians in the surrounding discovered, hey, look at Dimitri. Actually, maybe it makes sense. Maybe it works. And uh, they started ordering instruments. Uh, musicians started visiting my workshop from all around Europe. And uh, uh, and then world-class musicians also started ordering instruments and not just one by ordering by, by the hips like Sigiswal Kaiken, for example, he ordered six instruments of my work and um, I made three for Rio Terracado, two for absolutely incredible musician Sergei Malov, uh, also a violinist, conductor, and violoncellist Daspala doing lots of things. So then gradually instrument makers also got interested in um, what I'm doing. And I discovered that actually can, this is already after my stroke, uh, I discovered that actually I can help lots of instrument makers as well to get these results with total certainty. And um, a very inspiring life story has begun then, I must say. I've never been so happy. <laughs> 
what do you think about more? Do you think more about like your your down moments, more about the first authentic violin you sold or the quote unquote haters that basically said you couldn't do it? Because this the is, idea, a, this the is idea. like a really important question and um, uh, lots of listeners will be able to relate to this. You know, uh, in my opinion, but it's maybe easier for me to, to say that now because I was not always, I have not always been uh, the person I am today. And the mindset that I have today, I, I did not always have that mindset. There is always a, a way to go to improve. There's always a road to growth, you know. Uh, but, um, yeah, the, exactly the reasons why the world was failures in my uh, past career were because I would rather focus on the naysayers and allow my doubts to take over my uh, best intentions um, now I would just thank them for their opinion and focus on the positive 100%, of course. So it is very important to make this distinction between negative feedback and positive feedback in one's mind. And when the ne negative feedback comes in, well, flush it as quickly as possible. Thanks for sharing and just focus on the right stuff. And the right stuff is always, of course, um, going towards the goals that ones have in one has in in their mind now going let's say you were that that maker right that that, that yeah. 11 kid right that went into your shop right you know when you're 11 years old and you went into that shop and you were just awestruck if that same 11 year old kid went into your shop and was awestruck what kind of advice would you give that that child Ad, uh, advice you said advice like if he was saying i want you to be my mentor i want you to train me tell you everything i know what what what, what would that conversation look like hmm, yeah wonderful question uh so i i think i would uh, accept that child if they if they really want to learn from me and they want to uh, put their instrument making career on the right track from the start i would just take them in and uh I, I would teach them all areas of instrument making. So in my opinion, the number one issue in, in creative industries in, in general, so when you go to a tr traditional school of violin making or a conservatoire, they will definitely teach you how to be an awesome professional. So how to play those notes, how to carve those instruments to the best of your abilities. But normally they will not teach you anything about entrepreneurial skills. How do you actually make it work for you as a career, as a profession, without depending on circumstances which you cannot control like today like what musicians can do all the con all the concerts are canceled you know or so i would essentially teach uh, all five uh, skills that an instrument maker need in order to run a successful instrument making career in a way that would make them really feel happy and fulfilled mm -hmm. so that would involve aesthetical um, aesthetical appeal of their instruments, of course. It would uh, involve the sound, the acoustics of their instruments, definitely. These are the two things that are normally taught at violin making schools. What I would teach on top is definitely not just copy and not just following the footsteps of the engines, but uh, seek what they thought uh, using the words of Matsuo Basho. And I would teach them uh, the ancient master's thought process so that 
if they want to follow in this framework, fine. If they want to break the rules, then they at least know exactly which rules they are breaking and how and why. So it is still important to have this cultural foundation, even if you want to be uh, an avant-garde instrument maker and do something absolutely unusual. Um, and then I would also teach them uh, how to uh, price instruments because it, uh, very usually instrument makers don't know how to price their instruments. So there is no strategy, pricing strategy. And I've discovered in my own experience without a pricing strategy, anything you do seems either too expensive or too cheap. So it's very important that there is uh, some sort of pricing strategy that instrument makers can rely upon. Um, they would, I would also teach uh, how to um, uh, find new customers, how to, how to utilize social media marketing, how to utilize the modern tools that they, they, we have today at disposal um, to, to, increase the to increase awareness about their career, you know, to identify the ideal markets, get these people um, into their doors, essentially, into their workshop, and uh, convert them into customers. So essentially, I would also teach them how to sell instruments so that they can provide those services. So there are five five steps in instrument making business, and I would definitely teach all of those. Now, I know it's going to be more in depth, and I think the social media aspect of it of selling your product is something any of these business owners that are listening right now or someone looking to start a business can relate to. Can oh, you yeah. give words of wisdom regards to what you think is the best way of getting your message out there for your product? Oh, that's absolutely fantastic question. Well, I believe in Grant Cardone's uh, words. The number one issue uh, small business owners or um, individuals have is obscurity. So the number one thing is raise awareness that your business even exists. So simply the number one issue is obscurity. And simply not enough people know that those artists, musicians, instrument makers even exist. So this is the number one issue. So how do you cut? Uh, how do you cut through obscurity today? Using social media has never been that easy. Uh, key, the content is the key. So it just takes a, a little effort to create that content and push it out on social media, on YouTube, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, or Instagram, whatever whatever channel they want to choose, it's absolutely up to them. Uh, all of those channels are different. All of those channels work. And so you just can pick anyone or um, I would not advise to spread yourself thinly and do all of them at the same time. <laughs> this is, uh, at least in my experience, it didn't work. So when I started utilizing social media professionally um, in 2016, I, I was very inspired. I was on fire. Oh, okay. Let's do this. Let's let's start Instagram. Let's do Pinterest. Let's do this and that and that. So I've spread myself very thinly all over the place, and I didn't get any results. Zero. And I was working very hard. You can be sure about that. <laughs> so some um, uh, small business owners might be able to relate to that. So instead, um, I was taught by one of my mentors in uh, social media marketing and um, digital marketing. Now focus on one channel. Pick one channel and make it work. When you start getting sales, start getting um, some results, tangible results from one channel, great. Then you can add another channel and make that other channel work as well. So add channel by channel. Unless you have a big team to leverage, of course, then we can maybe speed it up, speed this process up. But if you are a solopreneur, 
uh, and probably don't want to spread yourself thinly. Another very important thing to do is, uh, as I mentioned, content is the king. Yeah. So now what kind of content? This content has to be pre-qualifying. So it has to be very, very relevant to your audiences. Now I can sh I want to share here uh, one mistake that I was making for a very, very long time. I just didn't realize what was going on. So uh, that that would take us to Tokyo when I lived in Japan in 2005. I started organizing my own concerts. And um, I started printing posters and distributing them uh, through different um, uh, concert venues. Um, sometimes it was leveraging also radio, like announcement on the radio and all kinds of things. But the mistake I was doing is that there was no clear messaging. I was trying to appeal to a generic music lover. So those people who go to listen, world-class musicians, those top 10, let's say, yeah, top 10, they are always sold out. So I, I just thought, well, these people, they love classical music, therefore they will come to my performance. And I believed, uh, religiously believed that this has to be true. I've discovered that this is not true at all. So those people who are interested in the top 10, they are maybe not interested in me. So I've, dis I've discovered, um, when I discovered what my people are interested in, and my people are interested in, um, in the thought process of the ancient masters, they are interested in traditions, especially uh, traditions that are, um, yeah, on, on the brink of being forgotten, on the brink of extinctions and cultural things that uh, people, certain people find really valuable and they would love to see this coming back more. Then everything has changed. When I realized this, my messaging, my content has been changed completely, like 180 degrees, and I started uh, sharing more content, which is also important to me, by, by the way. So it was not like a chameleon that I changed it. I started speaking about something that is not important to me. No, I just uh, really focused on this thing and on, on, the, on, the, on the cultural traditions. And the audiences started growing slowly but surely. Of course, I'm doing the same thing now in my content uh, content strategy to uh, uh, help musicians who find my message relevant. So these are the two things I think uh, that are really vital here is to identify your your niche and definitely cut through obscurity. I mean, I think anyone listening right now, picking up. I mean, having mentors, being hyper-focused on what you do, have a passion for what you do. I mean, these are things that are constantly being said throughout this whole whole interview process with you. And I think you've talked about at least four or five mentors, and it sounds like you have, you've had more than that over the years. So it's if you're listening right now and you're looking to to get go forward in any platform that you're looking at, find a mentor, find someone that's been there. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, that's... I think that's so huge. Now, if someone's listening right now and they're looking to to purchase a violin, maybe they have questions for you. They I mean maybe they're that twelve year old kid that's listening to us on YouTube or Very one of the who wants to reach out. What's the best way of them reaching out to you? The best way to reach out uh, through my website, so badiaroviolence.com. So that's an easy way. If you are on Facebook or YouTube or LinkedIn, you can very easily find me there and just connect through those platforms. So that's uh, very easy. Perfect. Well, thank you again for being on the, the podcast. Thank, uh, thank you. you for, 
for telling your story. It's a, it's a great story. It's a it's a great story of passion. I think everything you've done, it sounds like passion with one thing to the next thing and just keep driving forward. So I, so I love that. Uh, everyone Thank listening. you very much, Vicente. Thank you very much for uh, giving me the opportunity to meet you and share this message. Uh, that yeah. Definitely some people will find it valuable. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I think so. Yeah. So please subscribe, please share, reach out to yep. Dimitri. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.